it's been said that numbers, numbers don't lie. What you see is, is what you get with numbers. And one could argue that uh, numbers, well, that's the numerical equivalent of logic. And I've never been confident uh, in my ability with math. I could do it, but not with ease and, and not really with, any, with much assuredness. Um, I was always more comfortable with, with the gray areas that you find in literature, uh, all those different levels, levels of, of subjective intent. Um, you know, did the writer mean this? Did the writer mean that? When the character said this, or, you know, what was on Shakespeare's mind when he wrote this? Um, you know, those nebulous areas that, that entertain question. Um, literature was my thing, but not numbers. <laughs> but the beautiful thing with numbers, you know where you stand. Um, even with rocket science, you're dealing with known, established facts and factors. And, and, and while there are lots of divine mysteries in Scripture, there are a lot of specifics that don't require debate. They don't really require a lot of wonder about them or, or deep pondering. They're, they're fairly cut and dried. They may require the one who claims to be a Christ follower to wrestle with a specific claim or, or demand. But at the end of the day, the challenge is not in understanding the content of those specific scriptures. The challenge is the obedience that's required to follow them. And a lot that Jesus says is not rocket science. And so when Matthew 16 begins, Jesus and the disciples, they're in the region of Caesarea Philippi, and last week we saw Peter confess that, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Um, Jesus, the fulfillment of all that we just heard the, the choir sing and, and Graham narrate, all of these fulfillments of prophecies from Genesis all the way to the time where, where Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, the Word made flesh, came to dwell with man. And, and we, see, we see Peter confess that uh, there in chapter beginning of chapter 16. And, but we also saw Peter try to rebuke Jesus. <laughs> you, know, you try to correct Jesus when Jesus is explaining the reason that he came and his mission and his death on the cross. And, and Peter tries to tell Jesus, you know, you don't do that. And, and Jesus, as we saw last week, set Peter straight. Uh, gave Peter some course correction. Well, there's a lot in chapter 16. And this morning we're going to draw chapter 16 to a close. And, and the way this ends is Jesus gives the disciples and he gives us a specific direct command. One that's not rocket science. Verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Three things. Three things. If anyone should wish to come after me, come after Jesus, he must deny himself, he must take up his cross, 
and he must follow. And, and Jesus said those that choose to come after him must deny or disown themselves. So if we choose to come after Jesus, we, we must be willing to disown any plans of our own that, that might, in fact, really kind of possess us. May kind of, we may be all enthralled and wrapped up in those. 24, we, we just read, he must deny himself. And, and some of your Bibles may read he must deny. Some might read let him deny. Um, in the original language, in, in the Greek, the verb is, is what is called... And, and, and Greek is a little different than English. Actually, it's a lot different, but, but the, verb, the verb is what is called an imperative. It's a, it's a direct command. And, and even when your, your script, some of your scriptures may say the word let, that is not an allowance. That's a, that's a command. And, and, and so Jesus is saying he must deny himself. And, and this means to disown and renounce self, to disregard all personal interests. And Jesus also says that those who choose to come after him, again, it's a choice, must take up their crosses. If we choose to come after Jesus, we must be willing to, to lay down treasures that might, in fact, be a trapping for us. And there may, maybe there's some treasures that each of us have that we esteem more highly than we ought. He must take up his cross there in 24. And again, in the original language, the verb is an imperative. It's a direct command to take up. So what does that mean? This idea of taking up the cross, this means to undergo suffering. Trial, punishment, to expose oneself to reproach and death. It's an instrument of persecution and death. And when, G when the disciples hear Jesus say this, to take up one's cross, in that context, in that culture, in that day and time, those disciples knew exactly what that meant. Because those were how, that was how criminals were executed. So they knew what was coming. And if we choose to come after Jesus... We, we've, we must follow him in the direction that he's going. You're saying, well, that doesn't make sense. Let me, let, me, let me explain. We've got to retreat from anything that would send us in an opposite direction than which Jesus is going. Yeah, amen. He must follow me is what Jesus says. And... In the original language, this is a little different. It's, a, it's an imperative, like the other two, but this is where it's a little different. It's what is called a present imperative, and, and meaning this. It's an ongoing command. So Jesus is saying that if anyone chooses to come after him, that person must follow and keep on following. It's not, it's not a one-time deal. You know, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. All done, I'm good. No, it's, it's to keep on, keeping on, keeping on following. And, 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 the, and that, what that means is to, to be in the same way with, to, to accompany, to, to follow, to be a disciple, 
uh, to follow teaching, to be in the same way with. And, and, and he who follows will be in the same way with the one that he is following. In the same direction, almost in lockstep with. He will accompany, he will move forward, he will not be static, he will not be still, he will become a disciple, he will be obedient and he will listen. And boy, those are the hardest parts, aren't they? But see, Jesus says this, and it's not rocket science. Well, after these three must-haves, these, <laughs> these must-dos, these three imperatives, Jesus says this in verse 25. I mean, there's a whole lot there in that one verse. <laughs> but in 25, Jesus says, For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So if one wishes to save or preserve one's, one's life, he will lose it, he will he will destroy it. But if one loses his life for the sake of Jesus, he, he will find it. So who, if, if one destroys his life fully, he will find fulfillment. He will find like a treasure on account of, because of Jesus. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. There in 25. Look at those words. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Whoever wishes, whoever wants, desires, whoever likes to, to save or protect or to keep safe or preserve your life. And, and that's physical life, but that's spiritual life, inner life, those things that mean the most to us. So whoever desires to protect or preserve one's innermost things that mean the most will lose it, will We'll destroy it. We'll, we'll kill it. Another way of saying it is this. Whoever wants to keep his or her self-interests safe and protected and preserved, maybe, maybe conveniences, whatever those things are the most, mean the most, will ultimately, unfortunately, kill those things. But Jesus says this, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And, and when, John, when Jesus preaches this in, in the Gospel of John, John chapter 12 records it like this. Jesus says, whoever hates his life. And Mark, when, when, when Mark records this in Mark chapter 8, Jesus says, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. And you could say the verse another way. You could say it like this. Whoever loses his self-interests for the good of, the advantage of, the enhancement of the good news of salvation, that's the gospel, will ultimately preserve his life. Jesus could have said it like that. In, in, in this losing of our way of life, of our preferences, to save our lives, we are in fact denying ourselves, which is what Jesus said there in verse 24 at the beginning. When we lose our way of life, we are denying ourselves. And, and to come after, to follow Jesus, we've got to be willing to disown those plans that may be a trapping, may, may possess us. And, and this is what we're talking about. We're, we're talking about the abandonment of of, of self-ambition, agenda, achievement, giving up our way for another 
where we don't set the direction. And part of the challenge in this mindset is, is that our culture sees us as foolish. It's, it's a contradiction of the American way. It's, it's a paradox. It's a, it's a contradiction. And if, but if one can move past these pressure points of pride, one can rest in letting Jesus set the agenda. Let me say that again. If one can move past pressure points of pride, one can rest in letting Jesus chart the course, let Jesus set the agenda. There's a Bible teacher named Sharon Dowd, and, and she, she gives some more clarification, and I think this is brilliant how she, how she wrote this. It does not mean, when you deny yourself, it does not mean giving up certain pleasures or desires. It does not mean adopting the posture of a doormat <laughs> by abandoning all sense of self. That's not what it means. It means, rather, abandoning all claims to self-definition and accepting God's program for and God's claims upon one's life. And so it's a must. It's an imperative that, that if we're going to come after Jesus to save our lives... We, we must disown ourselves. We must take up our crosses, and we must follow Him. It's not rocket science. Then Jesus asks two questions. There in 26. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Two questions. And that first question, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world? and forfeits his soul. And these words Jesus uses, profit, you know, to derive benefit, to gain, to increase, to forfeit, uh, to lose or to give up because of a rule. I, <laughs> I remember the days of the Little League and having to forfeit the game on occasion. Ugh, <laughs> no fun. No fun. Forfeiting is no fun. Jesus says this idea, if he gains the whole world, well, that, that can also mean a way of life, a way of routine, a way that's contrary to the direction of the gospel. So what does a man profit by gaining the whole world but forfeiting his soul? And another way to say it is like this. How does a man derive benefit by increasing in a way of life completely opposed to the gospel? And thereby losing, giving up his, his life, his inner being, those things that mean the most to him. How, how can a man derive benefit from that? Well, here's the answer. You don't. There's no benefit, there's no profit. And Jesus asks this question that has an obvious answer. One can't benefit. And then there's that second question. What will a man give in exchange for his soul? So you turn the words around. A man will give what? in exchange for his soul. What will a man trade? What can a man pay as an equivalent or exchange for his life? The answer? There's nothing that anyone can pay. And, and it, it, again, <laughs> no one can. And Jesus asks these two questions to show the futility of mankind trying to save it's collective life on its own. Wanting our own way. 
But the question of, of man wanting to save life, save his life, still remains. Jesus said that in a verse earlier that the only way to save a life was losing it for the sake of him and the gospel. And this requires coming after. This requires following, disowning self, and, and picking up this instrument of death, the cross. Disowning, denying, means laying something down. We're told to take up the cross. We're told to pick up the cross. And you can't pick something up without laying something down. You, you, can't, you can't pick something up if you don't put something down. It's not rocket science. Then Jesus says this. Verse 27, For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of His Father with His angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. The Son of Man is on his way. Amen. And he will come in the glory of his Father, the glory of God the Father, and all the splendor... <laughs> all the splendor of the heavenly king and the coming kingdom. I mean, can you imagine? <laughs> the return of the Son of Man enwrapped in the visible glory of God the Father. And he will come with his angels. The Son of Man is going to come with his angels, these heavenly messengers, and he will repay every man according to the man's deeds. The Son of Man and his kingdom are on the way. And there will be no mistake. When it's time, we will know. <laughs> we will know. It will be very clear. The coming of the king and the kingdom will not be missed. He's coming in all power. He's coming in all glory. And the company of his angels. And he's coming as judge. Truly I say to you. Jesus states that some of those who are standing in his presence will not taste death until they see the return of the Son of Man. What does taste death mean? Does it mean die? Does it mean something else? What does Jesus mean? Well, this is one of those difficult verses about which a great deal has been written. A lot has been written about this for a lot of years. Is Jesus referring to the next chapter, Matthew 17, when he and Peter and James and John arrive on what will, become, what will become known as the Mount of Transfiguration? Yeah, that's next week. When the glory of God, when the glory of God the Father, all the splendor of a heavenly king and the coming kingdom is made manifest around Jesus, is, is this what Jesus is referring to? Is Jesus referring to his crucifixion and his resurrection? Or could Jesus possibly be pointing to the fall of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, that that's going to occur about 40 years after this conversation, in the year 70. And these all have some degree of aspect of, of heavenly kingdom, manifestations, and, and divine judgment, but... This is one more divine mystery. 
But the rest of this passage is pretty clear. It's not rocket science. Jesus says those who choose to come after him must follow him. And if we choose to come after Jesus, we must retreat from anything that would send us in the opposite direction. Uh, let, me, let me give you a story from, from Luke chapter 9. Jesus and his followers are going along the road, and, and someone says to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus says to the man, he says, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And Jesus says to another, he says, Follow me. But the man says, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. Well, you know, we don't know if the father's sick. We don't, we don't, know, we don't, even, we don't know anything about the father. The father may be on the golf course feeling great. <laughs> we don't know. But Jesus says to the man, Allow the dead to bury the dead, but as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. And then another says, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. And Jesus says, No one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. We must back up. We must retreat from anything that's going to keep us from following Jesus. And, and any, anything means anything, any place, any habit. And you know, the Holy Spirit, we have the gift, we have the gift of the helper, the comforter, the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit has a wonderful way of bringing those kinds of things to our attention in a very gentle kind, but continuous way saying, uh-uh, this is becoming a problem for you. And once we back up from those things, we move forward as we come after Jesus. And we take up our crosses, and that does probably mean setting something down. Setting down a treasure, an idol. Ooh, I'll use that word. Something that doesn't, doesn't want to let us go. Mark chapter 10. Jesus is setting out on a journey. And a man runs up to him and, and kneels before him and he says, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus, he says, well, you know the commandments. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness, don't defraud, honor your father and your mother. And he says to Jesus, he says, Teacher, I've kept all these things from my youth up. And Jesus looks at him. And Jesus feels a love for him. And he says to the young man, he says, One thing you lack... Go and sell all that you possess and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. 
Mark tells us that at these words, the young man was saddened and he, he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much. And Jesus looks around and he, and he says to his disciples, he says, how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus feels a love for this man. He, he feels compassion for him. And, and Jesus wanted this man to find freedom <laughs> that the man would never know ultimately outside of following Jesus. And there's a trade-off. I mean, I love stuff. <laughs> You've heard me say this before. I mean, I love stuff. I love any kind of music paraphernalia, instruments, guitars, you name it. And some years ago, I had to unload some of it for this reason. I, I began to esteem it in a way that was not right. Taking, taking pride in some things that esteem some treasures more highly than I should. You have to put something down to pick something up. You have to put something down to pick something up. It's hard to hold on to a cross if I'm trying to hold on to something else too. And we can't have both. I mean, in essence... <laughs> We're putting a toy down and picking up an instrument of both execution and salvation. But it's a must, it's an imperative to come after Jesus to save our lives. We must disown ourselves. We, we must take up our crosses and we must follow Him. It's it's not rocket science, but it's so worth it.